have the opportunity to sing again to God's praise. Um, our next hymn is a hymn that is found on the insert in your bulletin. It's called By Faith. Uh, we have sung this uh, many times as a congregation, but the last time was probably about three years ago or so. It's been a little while since we've sung it together. Uh, so for some of you that are newer, it may not be familiar, but I think you'll catch on uh, soon. It's a wonderful hymn, though. Uh, which speaks about how the Christian life is a life that is lived by faith, trusting in the promises of God, knowing that his word is sure and that the Lord is uh, faithful indeed. And so we'll stand and sing this hymn uh, together.
be seated. Might the Lord help us to do just that, to be those who uh, live by faith uh, in the living God. Uh, we come today in our uh, consecutive study of the book of Galatians to uh, Galatians chapter 2 and verses 11 through 14. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 uh, through 14. Um, this uh, section of, of, of the book of Galatians is actually the last autobiographical section in this book. Uh, Paul has given us a rather extended passage in which he uh, kind of tells his own story to defend his authority as an apostle. In chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, Uh, Paul describes how he had been an apostle long before he met the other apostles. Uh, He didn't derive his authority uh, from the others, but rather the Lord Jesus revealed himself directly to Paul and gave him that gospel message to proclaim. And then in chapter 2, in verses 1 through 10, what we considered last week, uh, we saw that Paul had been recognized by the other apostles when he went to Jerusalem Uh, The other apostles, who were pillars in the church, uh, uh, received him and accepted Paul as an apostle in his own right and said that the gospel that he preached was uh, the apostolic uh, gospel, that same gospel message proclaimed to the Jews and also to the Gentiles. Uh, But now, as we come to uh, Galatians chapter 2 and verses 11 through 14, we will see here that Paul even had the authority to rebuke another apostle uh, whose conduct here was out of line. So we see that the gospel didn't exist uh, because of the apostles or for the apostles, uh, but rather the apostles themselves were servants of this gospel. It stood over them. It was the gospel which they proclaimed. Uh, it was, uh, and they themselves were uh, judged by Almighty uh, God. So Galatians chapter 2, uh, verses 11 through 14, is going to make this uh, crucial point. It's a very interesting incident uh, in the life of the church, one that's only described here uh, in the book of Galatians. But let's now hear God's word, Galatians 2, beginning at verse 11. Uh, but when Cephas, Cephas of course refers to Peter, Uh, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This ends this reading in God's word. Let's... Approach the Lord one more time in prayer and seek his help. Lord, we do desire your help now as your word is opened. Lord, we pray that it would be for the benefit of your people. Strengthen us, Lord, and 
enable the one who preaches to preach your word of truth. Open up, a, open up our hearts, Lord, we pray uh, in this hour. and We pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Well, this, this whole story began at a fellowship lunch. I don't know, maybe it was after a service uh, on a, a Lord's Day. The congregation uh, gathered to eat. It probably was a congregation uh, a lot like ours. It had people of all different ages, young and old, and those who were uh, new in the faith and others who had grown up in the faith. And importantly, in the city of Antioch, It was a congregation that consisted both of Jews, those who had been reared in the Scriptures, taught the things of God from a young age, but come to embrace Jesus Christ as their Messiah. It consisted of Jews who were Christians, but also Gentiles, those who had been converted out of a a pagan, idolatrous background. And they had now come to see the truth as it was in Jesus. And they were all together together in the same uh, congregation. You can imagine how it might have went. They perhaps walked through the line, each of them played in hand, perhaps through some meatball grinders and some pasta salad or whatever the equivalent was in Antioch of of their day uh, onto their plate. And then after getting their plate and perhaps trying to juggle it with something to drink, and I don't know if they had dessert in the other hand as well, they then got to choose where they were going to sit. And they had to find a seat, somewhere to go. And so they make their way in the, in the congregation, and they began to take their seats. And uh, they would have found seats across from each other. An older Jewish woman who knows her scriptures and who is now delighted at the end of her life to embrace Jesus Christ as the Messiah, sitting across from maybe a, a young family, uh, brand new, out of a Gentile background to the Christian faith. And perhaps they're the grandchild of that one woman and, and the child of this other uh, family quickly scarf down their food so they can go and run around together, a little Jewish boy and Gentile boy playing uh, out in the, the hallway somewhere or running outside. You can imagine the scene. It would have been something not all that different from what we experience Uh, here, and their fellowship would have been very, very sweet. Until it wasn't. That's what we have recorded for us in this passage, was what happened at a fellowship lunch one day. And we're going to look at it under two different headings. First of all, we're going to see conduct that damages. And secondly, a rebuke that restores. Conduct that damages, followed by a rebuke that restores. Now, first of all, a conduct that damages. Now, to understand the entire uh, incident that we're about to describe here, you need to understand a couple of things. First of all, the importance of, of table fellowship in the first century, and secondly, the restrictions which the Jews experienced uh, in that. Fellowship, table fellowship, uh, was important at that time, as it is uh, today as well. I mean, just ask little children uh, sitting down uh, in a cafeteria at a, at a school, okay? They like to sit down and eat with their friends. Or if you 
uh, invite somebody into your home to share a meal with you in your home. It was a sign of, of friendship. It's a sign of friendship. And so it was in the first century as well. Perhaps there was no greater sign of welcome and fellowship one with another than to share a meal, to sit down uh, together. It was a way of saying to somebody else, I welcome you and you are my friend. It's that way today. It was certainly that way in the first century as well. But in the first century, uh, for a Jew to eat with a Gentile uh, was deemed by them a transgression of the law. Uh, Jews had a strict dietary rules. And anyone eating in a Gentile home would surely fall foul of those regulations. Uh, the Old Testament forbade uh, um, uh, the uncircumcised from eating the Passover with Jews. And many Jews extended this then to, to other meals as well. It was absolutely forbidden that a Jew would sit down uh, with a Gentile. And so do you see what a radical thing it was in these early Christian churches. Uh, here in Antioch, when a Jew sat down with a Gentile at the Lord's Supper and at fellowship meals, and perhaps as well in each other's homes, well, it was a very, very big deal. Oh, what the power of Christ that was evident in that, in that place. Uh, they were testifying that those Old Testament ceremonial laws which had separated Jew from Gentile were now done away with since Christ has come. And together, a Jew and Gentile are saved by that one gospel that saves. And that's what he goes on. Paul in this passage in verses 15 and 16 says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet we know that a person, referring both to Jew and Gentile, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. And so the testimony of that early church was, whoever you are, whether Jew or Gentile, there is only one way of salvation, and it is through Jesus Christ. And through faith in Christ, all of our sins are removed. They were laid upon Him on the cross. And the curse of the law is no longer against us, because He suffered it in our place. And we are now accounted righteous in Jesus Christ. And it was the same gospel, whether you were Jew or whether you were Gentile, young or old, any background. And it was that gospel which now united them in the church, in the sweetness of table uh, fellowship. It was that radical truth in the early church that for us to be reconciled with God vertically meant that we are also reconciled horizontally with everyone else who is reconciled to him. Jew and Gentile in one body in the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And it was this same truth, dear friends, that Peter himself had come to realize. You remember in Acts chapter 10, uh, the whole story, how Peter himself was the first one to take that gospel to the home of a Gentile. He had received a vision from the Lord and all of these animals, which Peter, the good Jew, says, I could never eat these things. The Lord says, oh, what I have called clean, you don't call unclean. 
And he went to the home of Cornelius. And he sat down with him in his home and shared with him the gospel. All of this had already happened in the life of Peter. Peter himself knew the gospel. He understood it. And he had even extended this right hand of fellowship uh, to, uh, uh, to, to Paul himself. He says that, Galatians 2.9. They gave, Cephas included, the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to Paul. That they should take that one gospel to Gentiles just even as they were taking it to Jews. And so there was an agreement Peter understood the gospel. He was living it out. He had preached the gospel, even to a, to a Gentile man. He had understood the unity which this gospel brought. And it was that fact that Peter understood these things is what makes this action so grievous. What was it that happened? Well, we read, verse 12, that there were certain men who came These had been professing Jewish Christians. Uh, They're described as coming from James. That is, James, the Lord's brother, the leader of the Jerusalem church. And these men, um, coming from the church in Jerusalem, would have held that circumcision was that which was necessary for uh, salvation. They had seemed to begun to partake of this Judaizing error. And dear friends, we must not assume, by the way, that this was James's position. Now, he had previously, along with Peter, chapter 2 and verse 9, given Paul the right hand of fellowship and approved the gospel that Paul was uh, preaching. But these men come from the church in Jerusalem, and immediately there is some tension in the room at Antioch. How are, how are these men going to perceive what's going on in this place? Gentiles and Jews sitting across from each other at the same table. And you can imagine Peter begins to get a little bit, a little bit concerned, a little anxious, perhaps even a little fearful. And what does he do? He begins to draw back. He himself, a Jew, begins to draw back from sitting down with the, the Gentiles to eat. And he, and he goes and he finds a place just next to the Jews. And, and some of the other Jewish Christians who were in Antioch, they realize what's happening and they begin to kind of uh, do the same. And, and in this room suddenly we have a room that begins to be separate, a kind of Jewish faction in this room sitting down together in a sort of Gentile area where they're sitting down and, and, and enjoying uh, a fellowship. Well, why did Peter do this? Well, we can't be exactly sure. We don't know his motive. Maybe that he didn't want to offend these Jewish Christians. Maybe he thought, thought well, they, they just aren't ready for this yet. Probably Peter didn't want a dispute or a conflict on his hands. It seemed the easier way out. Just to, let's just again have our parts here, Jews and Gentiles separate. It, perhaps was afraid of what what might be said about him. If, again, these Jewish Christians from Jerusalem walked into this room and saw all this this table fellowship. But for whatever reason, Peter pulls back and and the others follow him. Even Barnabas, we're told, who had been with Paul, who had labored among the Gentiles. Even Barnabas himself begins 
uh, to pull back. And now suddenly this congregation in Antioch is split. We have Jew and Gentile. Well, what was happening here, Paul says, was something that was very serious indeed. Verse 11, notice the language that Paul uses. He stood condemned. That is, Peter was acting here against conscience and against the the clear revelation which Christ had given, and this was sin. And he goes on in verse, uh, verse 12 and even verse 13 to describe uh, uh, his action. Uh, well, I guess it's just, uh, um, uh, I'm sorry, verse 13 to describe it as hypocrisy. That is a kind of play acting that Peter said that he believed the gospel, but he was not living like it. His conduct, as it says in verse uh, 14, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That Peter, who knew the gospel and would proclaim the gospel, was not living it out in this manner of unity, table fellowship, within the church at Antioch. Well, that's the sin that Peter uh, had. Let me just pull out three points of application here before we uh, look together at the rebuke that restores Let's consider this sin now in three different points of application that I want to pull out of this. And the first is this, is that the truth of the gospel must impact how you live. The truth of the gospel must impact how you live. Did you notice that in verse 14? Paul says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. In other words, the gospel isn't something that you simply assent to in your head and say, yes, yes, I know all of that. Jesus died for my sins. He's now risen from the dead. I am saved. It's not just a belief that you verbalize, that you have up here in your head, but rather the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that transforms your entire life. It affects, then, the way that you live, and it should have affected the way that Peter lived in Antioch and the unity of the church. Well, how does the gospel impact us? Well, it impacts, uh, for example, the way that we treat people. We who have experienced the grace and kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ in our lives then ought to treat others also with grace and kindness. It means as well that We ought to hate sinning, that we who know that our sin put Jesus on the cross for us and that He has given us His Holy Spirit now to cleanse us from sin, we ought ourselves to hate sinning. It means also that we ought to love the church. Why? Well, because we know that the church is the bride for whom Christ died. You see what I'm pointing out is that in every aspect of our lives, The gospel, we ought to see it through the the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It impacts uh, everything. To believe the gospel changes everything. And we ought to say, O Lord, in everything that I do today, will you bring my conduct in step with the truth of the gospel? Help me not only to profess the gospel with my mouth, but to live out all of its implications in my life in my attitudes, in my words, in my actions. The Lord, might it be that my conduct would be in step 
with the gospel. So the truth of the gospel must impact how you live. But there's a second application here. And this is a, a very uh, special application drawn here from the life of Peter himself. And it is this, you need to beware denying the gospel out of fear of man. Why did Peter separate himself? Well, we're told in verse 12 these words. It was that he feared the circumcision party. He feared how they might respond. He feared what they might say. And out of his fear of man, he failed to do what the Lord had so clearly called him to do. And friends, it is a lesson to us. You know, this isn't the first time this happened in Peter's life. Isn't there such an interesting similarity between this and what happened on that night that Jesus himself was arrested and tried? Peter, who had received so much from the Lord Jesus' hands, then was confronted by a little servant girl who said to Peter, I I think I saw you with him, didn't I? You're one of his followers. And Peter, not once or even twice, but three different times, denied even knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Out of fear of me. And here we see the same thing yet again repeated in Peter's life. And it stands as a warning to you and to me, does it not, that we must not hide our faith or deny it because of what other people might think about us. We're going to live our lives not fearful of man, but rather in service to God. Somebody says to you, you know, you're just out with maybe a co-worker, unbelieving friend. They say, you know, they just kind of say it offhand. Really doesn't matter what you believe anyway. How do you respond? You have an opportunity to say something. To testify to Jesus Christ. We're going to be tempted to keep our mouth shut, say nothing at all. Why? Because out of fear of man. Rather than in that instance to give testimony to, to Jesus Christ. And, and there's many other examples that we could give, but let, let's have it. Let's not follow Peter's example. Beware of what he did out of fear of man. He stepped back from owning the gospel of Jesus in this example. The third application is this. Now, the third application is this. I'm going to put it this way. Uh, Who you eat with is a gospel matter. That's a little provocative way, maybe, of saying this point right here. It is that promoting warm, joyful, family-like fellowship within the church is one of the most powerful testimonies to the gospel's power. Promoting a warm, joyful, family-like fellowship within the church is one of the most powerful testimonies to the gospel's power. Dear friends, what this church in Antioch, before Peter began to divide this congregation, what they stood at was was a, a testimony to the power of Jesus Christ that he could make the two one, that Jew and Gentile could sit across from one another in table fellowship where the only thing that mattered above all else was that they held the Lord Jesus Christ in common. And dear friends, when we in the 
church of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel, the outworking of the gospel looks like in this place. It is that suddenly we are brought into a kind of warm, joyful, family-like fellowship with each other, not because we share interests in common, not because we have a similar background, not because we have a similar uh, just perspective on the world or on politics or on life or anything like that, but what joins us together, dear friends, is Jesus Christ. And He joins us together in a family Uh, that is closer than any other. And that is a powerful testimony to the gospel. So that's why it is a gospel matter that we have this kind of fellowship with each other. You know, and even when a visitor comes in uh, into our midst, our prayer ought to be that they would see this kind of love one for another and that they would be embraced in it themselves and that they don't have to meet other kinds of criteria in order to be welcome. They don't have to... uh, uh, you know, they don't have to already know us ahead of time or uh, send their kids to a particular school or come from a particular town or uh, uh, any kind of thing like that, but rather they come into us, they're a fellow believer in Jesus Christ, and they're embraced, warmly welcomed and embraced. And so think of what are the little ways that we can promote this kind of fellowship. You know, often this kind of fellowship is built up in a coffee hour between Sunday school and a church service, or in hanging around and talking with one another after the church service, or in a Wednesday night when we spend time together, or we eat together on a Wednesday night sometimes, or uh, when we volunteer side by side in one of the church's ministries, and we look to to serve one another, or or when we go out and and do an activity activity together or have one another into our homes. That's those kinds of things is when the fellowship is built up and we need to be careful. We need to be sure to not simply be building fellowship with people that we are related to or people that we are maybe just naturally drawn to, but rather that we are seeking to build up fellowship with other believers, no matter their background even of different interests or different ages than us because of the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. And friends, that is such a powerful testimony for the gospel. And as I look even ahead to to the, the continued future of this church, let me just say I'm so encouraged at how I do see this happening. And I think for us to, to thrive and to prosper as a community of God's people here in West Springfield, this needs to continue to happen. Uh, at even greater measure, that we would build up this kind of fellowship, true fellowship, one with another. Friends, it is a gospel matter. Who we eat with, that is, who we have fellowship with, making sure not to exclude people or to ignore them or to put them to a side. Who we eat with is a gospel matter. Let's move on now to the second point that we see in our sermon. So if the first uh, uh, here was uh, the sin that damages, and it did damage the church, the second thing that we see here is a rebuke that restores. A rebuke that restores. So we've looked at uh, Peter's sin, uh, the kind of... uh, withdrawing that's happened here, Jews and Gentiles now separate from one another. And Paul 
sees all of this happening. And, and what we have described here is, is something rather fascinating. Um, I don't know what you were thinking of when you thought of this incident. Perhaps some of you were kind of thinking of almost like of a, of a kind of prize fight. Here you have uh, the two heavyweight apostles. Okay? Each kind of in his own corner, maybe you're thinking about it. Perhaps you're thinking of them even putting on the gloves and beginning to stare one another down. Thinking of the knockout punch where the other person's going to go down. Well, let me say... If that's kind of how you're thinking of it, you're probably thinking of this incident in the wrong way. It's not really what's going on here. It's not a kind of prize fight. It's not a, it's not a battle between Paul and Peter for supremacy. But rather, what you have here is actually the same thing that should be going on in churches and does go on in churches And it is simply this, it's simply Paul having the courage to lovingly confront his Christian brother who was in sin. And that's what's happening. Paul lovingly confronting his Christian brother who was in sin. This is not Paul acting out of spite. He doesn't have a short temper. He didn't, Paul was not one who loved controversy. He did not welcome conflict. Okay, Paul wasn't eager for something like this to happen. He wasn't rubbing his hands together. Finally, my chance to take on Peter. Just the opposite. Paul, Paul, I'm sure, didn't want this. And Paul did not do this all of the time. Okay, You, you can't. It's not like we can just open up the pages of Scripture and we see everywhere Paul was going, he was uh, having these dramatic kind of public confrontations with uh, uh, fellow apostles or anything like that. No, not at all. So what was it then that drove Paul to publicly confront Peter in this incident? Well, I think it was a few different things that we have to see that, that were special here. And the first is this. It was the influence that Peter had. Peter was sinning, but his sin was affecting the entire congregation. Right? Verse 13. The rest of the Jews. That was a lot of people in the congregation in Antioch. There were a lot of Jewish believers there. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. And even Paul's associate Barnabas, we are told, was led astray by this hypocrisy. And so Paul looked out and he saw an action that was impacting the entire congregation. The whole congregation now was split because of what Peter was doing. And so... Paul acted publicly because of the influence that Peter had. But secondly, it was because of the the damage that Peter's action caused. The damage that Peter's action caused. What was happening here was terrible. There was a precious unity that was being disrupted in this important Infant church of Antioch, at this crucial stage of the beginnings of the gospel being taken out among the Gentile people, here was a congregation where Jew and Gentile were living together 
And there was the potential through Peter's action that this precious unity in this church was going to be destroyed. And by destroying that, what was it going to do? It would even call into question the whole Gentile mission of of, of Paul. Right? Where, Where Gentiles, should I even become a Christian? Look what's happened in Antioch. And it could have had ripple effects throughout the whole congregation, uh, throughout all of these congregations. And so there was an extraordinary damage that was created here. There was the danger of a permanent barrier being created between uh, both Jew and Gentile. And so Paul could see this. And he saw this was something significant and important. But it wasn't only the influence that Peter had and the damage that Peter's action caused, but thirdly, it was the gospel issue that was at stake. That this was no minor, inconsequential matter. Paul was not confronting Peter over the color of the carpet at the church at Antioch. It wasn't even kind of an isolated, personal offense that could have been overlooked. Okay, It wasn't that Peter had uh, spoken quickly or rashly or, or, or something like that. What was happening here was a matter that was crucial to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a public action about a gospel matter. And so for these reasons, Paul saw the necessity of acting, and acting publicly. And notice the words that he said, and I think and they were words of wisdom and of tact, words that were direct, but words that were not harsh, but got Peter to see simply the matter that was at stake when he said, if you, though a Jew... Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. That is, though you are a Jew, if you, for the, if the most important thing in your life is the Lord Jesus Christ and being redeemed by Him, and you don't even see the need now that Christ has come and keeping all of those ceremonial laws, why is it then, in hypocrisy, can you now force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He comes to him with, with this point and simply tactfully, directly, confronts the issue that is at stake. Well, we ought not to take from this, friends, that all Christians should be frequently standing up in the public assemblies, confronting one another over sin all of the time. Okay, We don't find this kind of thing happening all of the time over the pages of Uh, the New Testament. Now, we ought to be confronting one another in love and in appropriate ways. Often it is privately. It takes tact. We ought to restore one another, Galatians 6.1 says, in a spirit of gentleness. So we ought to show care in the way that that we do things in the way that we rebuke sin. But what is it that we can learn from Paul positively? It is this. And I think it's something so important that Paul, when the situation demanded it, was willing to take a public stand for Jesus Christ. And friends, I wouldn't have wanted to be in Paul's shoes. What he did was not easy. It wasn't easy at all. To publicly confront this pillar of the church, Peter, who had walked with the Lord, who had been the witness to his resurrection, the leader of the, of the early church, to publicly correct him before the, 
congregation in, in Antioch with the potential of disruption and people being upset by what, he's, what he said, it would not have been easy for Paul to do this. In fact, what he would have been tempted to do was to withdraw and just to let this go on, but he knew that he had to say something and say something he did. We can praise God for that because sometimes there are times when Christians need to speak out for the truth. What would have happened if Martin Luther had kept his voice silent at the time of the Reformation? When dragged before the Diet of Worms and commanded to recant of all the things that he had written, if he would have buckled and he... Nearly did, dear friends. He asked for that extra day and he was sought to gain strength and the help of the Holy Spirit. The pressure was so intense. Finally, and praise God, he did with the whole world against him. He said, I shall not and I cannot recant. He knew that to do so was to go against conscience, to go against the word of God, and that was not something that was safe. He stood alone, as it were, did the hard thing for the cause of Jesus Christ. We could point out others. William Carey, the beginnings of the modern missionary movement. It was very infrequent that missionaries were sent out across the world, but William Carey had had on his heart the the people of of India, and he desired their their salvation, and he he prayed for them, and he wanted to be sent, and even the, the... uh, the, the people of his, of his own churches said, you, you shouldn't go. Don't go. But Terry insisted. He stood alone, even for Jesus Christ. Or think of uh, that early saint, Athanasius, at a time when it seemed like the whole church was being swept up in, an, in the Arian heresy. That is a heresy concerning who Jesus Christ really was. Praise God for Athanasius. They... they they spoke of Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. He stood for truth, even when nobody else was willing to. He, he did the hard thing for the cause of Jesus Christ. Well, well, dear friends, what we have here is a kind of Paulus contra mundum. At a crucial stage in the life of this early church, when the precious unity between Jew and Gentile was, was this close to being fractured, Paul was willing to stand and to do the hard thing for the sake of his master. And there is a lesson in that for us, is there not? That we would be willing to stand in our families when we see our families slipping away. And it's easier just to kind of let, let our children go, go their way. And, and we don't have godly patterns in our family. We're not having family worship. We're not going to church regularly. We're not... Uh, 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 bringing God's word to bear in a loving way, and the, the things in our, our we need we need godly parents times to stand and say, "I'm going to wait." It can't be this way. It's easier just to let things slip away, but no, we're going to do what we need to for the sake of Jesus Christ. And they stand, and they stand. Similarly, we need people, and uh, or, or to to give another example, uh, somebody you know you see. Uh, uh, a scandalous sin that occurs, perhaps even occurs within the church, and you think it'd just be so much easier to turn a blind eye and to pretend that this didn't happen. But instead, you know that the right thing is to say something and to stand for what is truth and what is good. Or perhaps uh, you have a friend that is falling into doctrinal error. She is a, she's a professing Christian. She says she believes the Bible, but you see her 
of falling into error, are you willing to talk to her and to open up God's Word with her and to do the hard work of calling her back? You see, there are times when as Christians we are called uh, to stand. You know, I I praise the Lord uh, for the foundation of our own denomination, the PCA, and, and our sister denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Both of these denominations were born out of, out of a, a larger mainline denomination that had slipped from gospel truth. And do you know the easiest thing for a lot of those ministers to do would have been just to stay in the old denomination, to collect their pensions, to keep their buildings, and all of the rest. But many of them sacrificed much. They were willing to be scoffed and mocked. Many of them sacrificed financially, hugely. Churches lost their buildings. Why? Well, it was because so a denomination would be established that is founded on the Word of God. And it would be for the promotion of truth. You see, they were willing to stand. And that's what Paul was willing to do. Christ was worth it. He was willing to stand. But I think there's a lesson here, not only from Paul and from the rebuke that he offers. But I think there's also a lesson, and we're going to close with this, to learn from Peter himself. And think of Peter here. You know, Peter was, dear friends, Peter was a great man of God. He was a pillar in the church. He was somebody extraordinarily used by God. But here he fell into sin. And he needed to be restored. And it wasn't the first time. We we spoke of it earlier. He fell into sin when he denied Christ. Do you remember how the Lord Jesus Christ restored him and then used him? He preached a sermon on the day of Pentecost. Well, here is Peter once again falling into sin. But this isn't the end of the story for Peter. You know, we don't know what we're not, it's not recorded for us exactly how Peter responded when Paul said this. We don't know exactly, but, but, but we can imagine that it was probably a response with humility and graciousness. Because what we do know is most certainly that that relationship between Paul and Peter was not severed because of this incident. And we know even that Peter wrote two books that are in our New Testament long after this event happened. And in fact, even in those, new, those books in the New Testament, Peter himself was willing to apply the language of the Old Testament people of God, the Jews, to the New Testament church. You are a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, he says to the church of Jesus Christ. It is apparent that Peter learned something from this incident. And he was restored. And he was made useful in the church of Jesus Christ. And there is a lesson for that for you and for me. Dear brothers and sisters, sometimes we do sin. And we sometimes sin in grievous ways. And do you know, one of, one of God's mercies to us when we sin is that he puts people, fellow Christians in our lives who will call us back. Who will sometimes confront us and challenge us and rebuke us and lovingly call us back. And we need that. Praise God when that happens. And we ought not to fold our arms and stamp our feet and say, how dare they say something like that to me. Instead, we ought in humility to receive that correction. And might the Lord use it to our restoration, just as he did in Peter's life. 
This is a grievous incident in the life of the church. But do you know, even though it was grievous, the Lord still kept his people in the palm of his hands. And the church in Antioch was uh, set again on its proper course. The gospel was proclaimed to Jew and Gentile alike. We now have a church for both Jews and Gentiles, the worldwide people of God. Peter himself was made useful after this incident. The Lord used this for great good. We can praise God for that. And uh, might he use it for good in our lives also. Let's pray uh, together. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you uh, for the way that you used uh, even this sin at a fellowship lunch in Antioch so long ago. Lord, to continue to teach your church today. And we pray, Lord, that we would avoid the sins that Peter committed and that we would not operate out of fear. Pray, Lord, that we would value and prize and promote with everything in us the unity of the people of God. That, Lord, we pray for our church here that it would be just a precious testament to the power of the gospel. Uh, that we would love one another because of our common union with Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to do these things, we pray. And Lord, we do pray for the grace to rebuke when rebuke is called for, to receive rebuke when we need to receive it. Lord, do these things in our lives, we pray. And we pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Well, we're going to sing now. Uh, In response, our hymn is uh, 534. Uh, This is a uh, perhaps a new hymn for uh, many of us, but the tune is one that should be familiar. It's written.